0: Oh, I'm so excited about this. You know, when I was a youth pastor in Metro Atlanta, Georgia, I used to talk to our lead pastor about Easter Sunday because I could always tell that he was especially stressed and things were getting heavy on him that week. And he said, one day you're going to be preaching on Easter and you're going to know what I'm talking about. There's just an elevated sense of pressure and weight Because hearts and minds are open with sort of a fertile soil to receive the gospel that aren't always open every other date of the year. That there's people who are going to be within the sound of your voice who you might get one chance to tell them the truth about who Jesus is. And I just want to say, if that's you here, you are so welcome to be here. And it's not an accident that you're here. You literally could have been anywhere on Easter Sunday. And God has you in this moment. And so I have prayed for you. I prayed for everybody who would be here on Easter, but especially for those who really disconnected from Jesus. And if you got really honest, you don't know what a man dying on a cross, and even if he did rise from a tomb, you don't know what that has to do with your life. And I wanted to preach a sermon about the victory of Jesus that leads to the victory we can walk in as believers. The title of my Easter sermon is called Christ is Victorious. Christ is Victorious. Can you look at somebody next to you and say, victory, Victory. We're talking about victory today, and I I took this title from this Latin phrase that was repeated for about 1,500 years in the church. It's called Christus Victor, and it's the way they would talk about Jesus's victory over sin and death and hell, and I wasn't aware that that was a saying until recently, and when I heard that, I was freaking out, because here we are in 2021 with a church and a headline that says, Jesus wins, just repeating what the church has been saying for 2,000 years that Christ is victorious. So, you need to know those words up on the wall that's the headline of Easter Sunday. Jesus is victorious over the grave, and what his victory means over the powers of darkness is what our faith is founded upon. Like, you need to know this without the resurrection of Jesus, it is pointless to be a Christian. So this is not just one event among many that we celebrate, and it's like, I could kind of take it or leave it. Did he really rise? We don't really know. No, no, no. Paul says, if the resurrection of Jesus didn't actually happen, Christians among all people are to be pitied. If we don't have the resurrection, we got nothing, and we all need to go home and put away our nice clothes and not take pictures in front of crosses. The resurrection is the foundation of our faith. And it's important that I say that because there's a group of us who grew up, Hearing that the Bible is the foundation of our faith. And so you hear that so much growing up like this is the foundation of everything that we believe. And the Bible is true. And listen, I believe the Bible is true. I believe the word of God is true. But the reason why I believe the Bible is true is because Jesus rose from the dead. And his resurrection verifies every claim he makes. And so I always try to drive conversations about the Bible or about faith or even about my life personally to resurrection instead of getting caught up in meaningless conversations that actually aren't that helpful. So I I know for a lot of you, it's like, well, I just don't know. There's a lot of different writers, a lot could have got lost in translation. And I, I watched this documentary once and like really smart people don't believe in this stuff. And so I don't really know what to do with faith. And did you know a donkey talks in the old Testament? And what, what do we do with that? And what do we do with the flood and, and all this other stuff? First of all, to the things that are outlandish in the Bible to believe, I always remind people right now, as we speak, You are flying through outer space on a planet that is orbiting around a star, and you did not do anything about that. There are things that are happening in our universe, and your ability to be a collection of atoms that have come together and resonate with other people and have purpose and meaning and relationships on this planet with other species, this is mind-blowing that any of this has even happened. So yes, I do believe that things that are outlandish and miraculous are possible because you're a miracle. The fact that you're listening to me and creating meaning out of the words that I'm saying right now in your brain is a miracle. And so there's ways to explain away all these different things that we have difficulties with. But I always bring it back to, okay, okay, I I know that's important to reconcile all those things. And you actually can reconcile all those things. But here's the key question. Did Jesus die and rise again? And at the end of the day, do you believe that? And if you do, you have come to saving faith in Jesus and you put your faith and trust in what he has done for you. And if you don't, you're going to get an opportunity to do that today. But we're not going to do so in a way that's in denial of reality. I think Easter can be the ultimate opportunity for Christians to be tone deaf. You guys realize how crazy we sound coming into a room like this and claiming that Jesus wins and he's conquered the grave and death has been defeated? And there's a group of people with rational minds who are going, this seems like a hype show aimed at things that we wish were true. But in all actuality and in all reality, people have been dying for 2,000 years since Jesus rose from the dead. I'm pretty sure no one has lived without dying since Jesus rose from the dead. So what do you mean death has been defeated? I'll bring it close to home. Today, we're jumping up and down celebrating Jesus wins and our debt's been paid and the stone is rolled away and that feels awesome on Easter Sunday. But on Good Friday, in this room, there was a funeral for a 17-year-old boy. And so on the one hand, we want to dress up in our nice clothes and celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. But on the other hand, there's a world of suffering and death. There's a world of evil. That's great that Jesus rose from the dead. But what does that have to do with all the racism and injustice and difficulty and suffering in a broken world? And what does that have to do with all the suffering in my broken life? Like Jesus rose from the dead, but that didn't stop my parents from getting divorced. Jesus rose from the dead, but that didn't stop a cancer diagnosis. Jesus rose from the dead, but my life's still complicated. I'm depressed and literally can't get out of bed some days. And so a lot of times we'll claim this great victory that Jesus has, but it'll be so disconnected from the world that people are looking at and so disconnected from people's daily experiences that they write it off. And what I want to do today is I want to explain how Jesus's victory over sin and death and hell is your opportunity for a victory that you can walk in every day of your life. But it's not a one-size-fits-all, Jesus rose from the dead, everything is right again. It's a story that's unfolding in real time, and it's a story where resurrection is not an event. Resurrection is a person, and he's here today. Y'all look up here and do not miss this. We are not marking a holiday on our calendar to just look back 2,000 years ago and go, wasn't that awesome? That's part of it. But the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is in this room. He's in you if you are a believer in Jesus. And so here's what I'm believing for. I'm believing that God wants to have a resurrection party at Auburn Community Church today. That God doesn't want us to simply look back at an empty tomb and go, that's ancient history. No, he wants to rewrite the history of some families today. And he's going to do it through the word of God. If you brought your Bible to Easter Sunday, hold it up. Hold it up on Easter. Come on, God, hold them up high. Be proud, put your iPad down, hold it up high, another iPad. Jeez, I'm not going for that. Turn with me to Colossians. I'm sorry for whoever that is. Colossians chapter 2. It's fine. However, you read it, whichever one you read the most. Here's why I chose to preach from Colossians 2. Y'all, I debated so much this week about preaching on one of the resurrection narratives in the four gospels. And each one is so unique to me. I think one of the reasons why I believe in the resurrection is because no one would have made up what Jesus acts like after he rises from the dead. You ever read what Jesus Jesus does after he comes back? It's crazy. He doesn't go stand on a mountain and go, I was right. I am God. That's what any of us would have done. What does he do? He keeps sneaking up on people. He like pretends to be the gardener and messes with Mary. He goes for a walk where he's eavesdropping on these two guys. Like, hey, what are you guys talking about? Oh, you're talking about that guy who died? Yeah, tell me about that. And he waits. Like, he, he actually pretends to be walking further than them. And he's like, see ya. And they're like, wait, who are you? And he's like, it's me. And then he disappears. <laughs> this is real. You can read in John how... He recreates a miracle from a beach where they can't really see that it's him. And he's like, oh, you guys haven't caught any fish all night? Throw your net to the other side. And that's exactly what he did when he originally called the disciples. And he recreates that miracle. And he's almost looking at them from the beach like, when are you going to realize that it's me? And then Peter swims to him. And I love that they bring all those fish. And he's already cooking breakfast. He's like, that's great that you have something to offer. But I've already taken care of it. I'll include you in on my story. But I didn't need you. I'm inviting you. So beautiful. I've got so many sermons that I came up with this week. but God." But I feel like what God was saying is, no, 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 It's not necessarily this year about repeating one of those narratives. It's about the explanation of what Jesus was doing that's applicable for your life. And so we're going to read from Colossians. And when COVID hit, we were walking through Colossians verse by verse. We have like 18 weeks on Colossians that we did last year. But I didn't hit heavily on this collection of verses. And I want to hit on it from the Apostle Paul for a very specific reason. And I promise I'm going to read this, but you need to hear this. When Paul talks about the resurrected Jesus, he said, Jesus appeared first to James and the other disciples. And he lists out all these people who Jesus appeared to, including like 500 others over the course of 40 days. And then he says, and then lastly, he appeared to me. Although to one as abnormally born, what that means is Paul goes, I don't belong with the people. Who got the resurrection revealed to them? But somehow, I got grafted in at the last second. And do you know whose life ends up standing as a beacon of the hope of resurrection more than any life over the course of the last 2,000 years? Paul. And it's his explanation of what the cross means for his life and for Christians that I think is going to open your eyes to see how in the world does Jesus' victory over sin and death and hell mean anything for my life today. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. I gave you plenty of time. If you're there, say, I'm there. Paul says this. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. Having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. There are a few sections of scripture that are more beautiful on Easter Sunday than this one, so I'm going to read it twice. When you are dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Christ is victorious, Paul says, when you were dead in your sins. Jesus' victory is about a transformation from death to life not about an invitation to follow more rules or attend more church services. And so he says, when you were dead in your sins, God made you alive. Transformation by the resurrection power of Jesus is not about making a bad person good. It's about making dead people alive. Wait, 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 why are we dead? Because we live in an evil, broken world. And even if you're not following me on all this Bible knowledge and all this version that Paul has about the resurrection, you were following with me a few minutes ago when I told you how broken and evil the world is and how disconnected that seems from the victory we're claiming in Jesus. That brokenness is not how this world was originally created. That brokenness was a consequence of us disobeying the word of our creator who said, do not eat from that tree or you will surely die. And God's not a God who can violate his own word or his character. And so because he's a God of justice and because he is a God who keeps his word, mankind is eternally separated from God in their sins. And that separation is called death. The wages of sin is death. So what Jesus had to save you from and give you victory over is not from all the bad things that you've done and make you a good person. It's not From the fact that sometimes you binge on Netflix and you should be binging on sermons and the Word of God. It's not to make you into, okay, do all of these new things. No, primarily it's about a change of your condition, dead to alive. Okay, how does He do it? How does He accomplish the victory? Two ways. There's one victory that happens in heaven and there's one victory that happens in hell. And this is on your behalf. How how did Paul explain it? He said this He forgave us all our sins having canceled, somebody say, canceled. So many things canceled this year. I love that in heaven, the cancel culture has to do with canceling our debt of sin. Having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He is taken away, nailing it to the cross. Earlier we saying, now my debt is paid. It is paid in full. And there's some people in this room who heard that and you're like, I'm pretty sure it's not. (laughs) I'm still in debt and there's no amount of stimulus bills that are going to go through. They're going to get me out of debt. Like, you're like, what do you mean? I uh, I, I don't know what you're talking about, my debt. Listen, because of sin that leads to death, you and I have an eternal debt to pay to God. And the only way unrighteous people can come into the presence of a holy God as if there is a blood sacrifice. And so the Bible calls Jesus the propitiation for our sins. What does it mean? It means full payment. It means that in heaven, when Jesus comes as the great high priest, he doesn't bring a sacrifice. He is the sacrifice. And his blood poured out drinks the cup of God's wrath down and says, listen, I've taken on your behalf what is owed to you because of sin, and because I've taken it, you owe God nothing. You are free. You are debt-free in the sight of God. If you're in Christ today, when God sees you, he sees Jesus because Jesus took your place on the cross so that you could take his place as a child of God. It's the greatest exchange in all the world, and Jesus is the one who's like, I have paid your debt in full. When Jesus said, it is finished on the cross, what does that mean? So many of you have heard that, and you're like, I'm pretty sure the story's not finished because it's still going, and you still haven't risen from the dead. What did Jesus mean to tell us Die. it is finished? He means debt paid. Every drop shed for your sin and for mine. And so your heavenly father who created you to be in right relationship with him can now love you as the child that he created you to be. And do not think, oh, God's got to take out all his anger on the cross so he doesn't take it out on us. No, this is the greatest act of love and self-sacrifice in the history of humanity. But it's not just a victory in heaven. Did you notice the second one? There's a victory in hell. Look at this part. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So Jesus cancels the debt that we owe the Father, and he disarms powers. Wait, what powers and authority? We're talking about evil powers of darkness. That's what that language literally means. Satan. Satan. This is not an easy thing to talk about, especially for those of you who roll your eyes at spiritual things. But you need to know this. Human beings are not the only creation created by God with a level of freedom to exist and make choices in real time. There are spiritual beings who God, angels are included in that. But God has allowed them a level of freedom to exist. And so Satan exists primarily as an accuser against the people of God with a right to accuse because the people are guilty. Think about this text. All of this is courtroom language. We got a debt to be paid. We got a legal debt. And then we've got a power that needs to be disarmed. And so how does Jesus disarm Satan? He takes away his accusations from having any merit behind them. So when Satan accuses, he's right. Y'all, more often than not, Satan doesn't blatantly lie. He just slightly twists truth. That's what he does to Jesus when he tempts him. And so Satan will, on your behalf, go, hey, you can't take them in your presence because they did this. You saw this. You know this thought. They have no business being your children. And he's an accuser. But what God's able to do is go, yeah, I know. You're right about that. But here's the thing. That debt was paid openly on the cross. So when Jesus presents his blood to heaven, he goes into hell and he goes, hey, the debt's been paid in full. I'll take my keys back. The keys of death and Hades belong to the son of God. And he is victorious over the enemy. Oh, come on. This is why Easter is the greatest victory. This is why Christ is victorious, because what looked like a loss and like a celebration in hell turned into their ultimate demise, and that's why it's right that we celebrate. That's why people are shouting passionately in this room. It's not because they have a particular style of worship. It's because they recognize the victory that's unfolded, and when hell thought they won on Friday, Jesus wins on Sunday. There's no victory like one that looked like a loss. And I know that, personally, this is going to be very hard for most of you to believe, but I used to play basketball, okay? And I I, I laugh. It's funny. I did in high school. And so we had this... This one game that will always stand in my memory above and beyond any other game I was ever a part of. It was against our arch rival. There was another high school less than 10 minutes away from mine, and both schools had thousands of students. My wife actually went to my rival high school, by the way. And so we're we're like 10 minutes apart, and a lot of us had grown up together, and by the time I was a junior in high school, the tension between both schools had bubbled up so high that the pranks that were starting to get played on each school's property were getting out of hand, and there's this basketball game that's about to unfold, and I have never seen more people jam-packed into a high school basketball game than this one moment my junior year. I played for Harrison High School, by the way. It's where Jesus is. And, And my wife went to Kennesaw Mountain, right? down the street and so uh, we got a Mustang on the front row that's great you're gonna love this story so here's the thing this game is like the most back and forth game I have ever been a part of so many lead changes so many moments where both student sections almost got kicked out because they're about to fight parents are about to fight coaches are yelling at each other I mean it is tense back and forth back and forth we are up by one point with 10 seconds left and they inbound the ball, and one of their guys dribbles all the way down the court. And if you play basketball, you're going to know exactly what I'm talking about in a second. He shoots a floater that seems like it hits every part of the rim and backboard it can possibly hit. You guys know what I'm talking about? When a shot, it's just like boom, boom, boom. And the whole game hangs in a balance. It's like, it's like five, four, three, two. And as this is happening, like clock's going down. If that goes in, we lose. If that ball falls out, we win. Everybody, thousands of people in this gym hanging on what's going to happen with that ball. And I will never forget the dejection I felt as the ball comes through the hoop, buzzer sounds, they win. And at that point, their student section and their parents and their coaches and players have a party all over the court right in front of us like people legitimately got hurt in all of this madness. It is like crazy. Couldn't even get off the court. And I just remember feeling like I will never get over what just happened on this court. But then I see out of the corner of my eye, I see a ref like an angel. I see a ref walking over to the scores table and he's like, Hey, basket's good. But that, that ball went through the basket with about 0.5 seconds left on the clock. We're going to put 0.5 seconds back. And of course we're like, Oh, well that's, we're not going to do anything. We have to go the length of the court to do anything. And our coach gathers us up, and he's like, hey, listen up. Now, up until this point, we had wondered about the sanity of this man, okay? We wondered about his basketball knowledge many times. But we also wondered, like, okay, what's he going to say? And he's like, we can win this game. We're like, no, we can't do anything in 0.5 seconds. And he's like, listen, it's going to take them a while to get off the court. I want to show you how we are going to trick them into fouling us. And he says, what they are going to do is they're not going to know it. But one of you is going to put yourself in a position to get run over by one of them. <laughs> Who wants to be that guy? <laughs> Skinny sophomore named Matt, not Matt Cole. He didn't play basketball. <laughs> he was in middle school just hoping to be my friend one day. And so, sorry, it wouldn't be Easter without a Matt Cole joke. And so, and so this guy is like, I'll do it. And, and if you're a basketball coach, I need to show you what he drew up because it was actually brilliant. They finally get all their fans off the court and they're just out there, you know, kind of being lazy. And we've got this plan in place and it works. One of their guys runs over this guy named Matt. He steps up to the free throw line, makes both free throws. They inbound the ball, game over, we win. And then us and all of our fans and coaches are celebrating where they were just celebrating, going crazy. Don't you love reliving this memory? Who weren't there? You didn't care about basketball. And so, That night, I remember this. I wanted to be a preacher one day. I'm sitting in the locker room going, guys, this is just like Easter. We lost. And now we won. And I wanted to tell some of you on Easter Sunday morning. It really happened. I want to tell some of you on Easter Sunday morning, the celebration feels as intense as it does is because we should have lost this battle. We should have been separated from God forever because of our sin. But Jesus steps into our story and changes everything. And what we're celebrating is not disconnected from reality. I want to come back to my original question. So what does this have to do with the suffering that still exists in the world? And what does this have to do with the brokenness in my life? Everything. Because when Jesus rose from the dead 2,000 years ago, that was the decisive blow that destroyed the darkness. But it wasn't the final one. You need to hear this. It was the decisive moment of victory. But what happened 2,000 years ago and why Christians celebrate on Easter Sunday is not because all of the pain and death and difficulty went away. It's because when Jesus rose from the dead, one kingdom was disarmed and another kingdom was born. I'll say it this way. The ruling powers that existed from mankind's fall, Adam and Eve in the garden, up until another garden where Jesus rises from the dead. Those powers have officially been done away with and disarmed of their ability, running for their life. The Bible says he knows his time is short and a new kingdom is slowly being born. So here's what you have for the last 2,000 years. We live in this weird era called the already but not yet. It's where we've already been saved, but haven't seen the full culmination of it. It's where we're already given resurrection power, but our bodies haven't been resurrected yet. What you have is a tension between two different worlds. Like you live in a world that's split two different directions. you got one world that's dying, and you got one world that's coming to life. you got the kingdom of God, namely the church of Jesus Christ, spreading all over this planet, carrying hope to people who have no hope, and giving new beginnings to people who would have no way of having it without Jesus. But you also have funerals. You also have moments where we are soberly reminded that this is not our eternal home. And every evil that you see, every brokenness that you come into contact with, every ounce of suffering that you have is a reminder, this is not final. This is the world that's being destroyed. But Romans 8 says this, it says, the creation groans with groans of like childbirth, waiting for the sons of God to be revealed. Every time there's a natural disaster on this planet, I think about that verse. Every time a tsunami rises up and takes out a whole city, and people blame God, and literally we have a verse telling us that our planet is yearning for a new kingdom to come to full fruition. Guess what? That will happen when Jesus returns again, but until then, it is our job to let the whole world know that hope is on the way. That's it. And so, listen, you want proof? So you you go, okay, I could get on board with that. But I still need proof of resurrection power. Here it is. I can't take you in a time machine back 2,000 years ago to show you his hands and show you his feet and show you the tomb. I can't do that. But the proof of resurrection power is that the same thing I just described about what's happening in the world, one world dying and one kingdom coming to light. That same thing is happening in the life of every believer in Jesus who's being transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. So no, I can't show you resurrection power historically, but I can show you it in faces of people who are looking at me right now. You want to know whether or not Jesus is who he says he is? The proof of God is intended to be the transformed lives of believers. And I've seen people in real time be headed in one direction and God supernaturally changed their lives forever. And that change is complicated. It's not final in one moment, but it is decisive. And you're watching a new person be developed and an old person be done away with. Here's how Paul describes it in Colossians 3. You need to read this. This is so key. This is his commentary on what he just said in Colossians 2, verses 13 through 15. He said, since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Oh, this is so good. This is describing what's called unity with Christ. Why why does Jesus's victory become ours? Because when we join our lives to him by faith, his death is our death and his resurrection is our new life. For anyone in this room who's a Christian who feels like a hypocrite, this is going to encourage you so much. Change is complicated because the old you is dead and slowly dying. And the new you is alive and slowly growing. And as long as that's happening over time, you get this powerful promise on Resurrection Sunday. You ready for this? The resurrection of Jesus is God's guarantee that the new you is the real you. The resurrection of Jesus is God's guarantee that the new you is the real you. So if you're like me and you've ever claimed faith in Jesus but wondered whether or not your commitment or recommitment or recommitment to that commitment where you put your stick in the fire for the thousandth time actually took, you have been baptized multiple times, you have prayed the prayer, you raised your hand, did everything, and you're like, I keep struggling to change. Here's the promise. If you are in Christ, Jesus says the new you is the real you. And the old you has died with me. I've never been more encouraged by the fact that Jesus died than this year. I know it's sad, and it's hard to go through Good Friday. But we call it Good Friday because, listen, if Jesus doesn't die, the old us doesn't die. We need his body to become a corpse. We need the breath to come out of his lungs. Because as he dies and goes into that tomb fully dead... That is God's guarantee if you're joined to him that the old you in his sight is totally dead. Behold, the old has gone and the new has come. That's you. And watch this. If you're a Christian, God has never seen you any other way than as the new you. Every time you've ever prayed, every time you've ever sung, every time you've ever sought him, he's not over here going, when are you going to get out of the tension of acting like who you used to be and start walking like who you're called to be? No, he is waiting for the moment that you wake up to what's already yours because of the resurrection. The new you is actually the real you. And this is so encouraging to me because now when the accuser accuses you, you can agree with him and then gently or harshly correct him. I found in my life, Gage Henry, our college pastor, preached a sermon a couple weeks ago about lies and truth. And he wrote letters to himself that one of them was angled from the lies he believes about himself. And one was angled from the truth he's called to believe. And so he challenged all of us to do that. And I was going to do it. But I, I literally put it off. And I'm like, I got a lot going on right now. And Easter's coming up. And I felt like this week God was not going to reveal to me what to preach on until I took time to do it. So I did it. Here's what blew me away. The lies that I wrote down, a lot of them are true. They're just true with a twisted angle toward harming me. So it's like your wife will always think this about you. You will always struggle with this. You will always come up short in this area. Everybody thinks this about you. You And I'm writing these things down. I'm like, man, I could say that that's a lie, but some of this is legitimate. Some of this is the result of behaviors and patterns that I really do need to change. But here's where the accuser loses his power. He loses his power because he's accusing a version of you that's dead. Oh, so you're going to tell me about what the me who died did? Yeah, what you're saying is 100% true, but here's what you need to know. Those descriptions of me are no longer my identity. My identity now is child of God because by the power of Jesus, I've been transformed. Transformed from what? Death to life. This is what it means to be a Christian, y'all. This is what it means to believe in Jesus. It is not ascribing to a set of beliefs. It is knowing that you've been made new and walking and talking like it and believing it even when you don't feel like it. And letting the Holy Spirit preach it to you even when you don't believe it for yourself. And so what does Paul say? He says, set your hearts and set your minds on things above. Church, that's the only pathway to victory in the Christian life because all the other victories have already been accomplished. If you didn't understand what I just said, look up here. You cannot miss this. This Easter at ACC is not about Jesus winning a victory over sin and death and hell. He's already won that one. This Easter is about Jesus winning a victory over the attention of your mind and the affections of your heart. That's where the battle is now. He's already won that one on your behalf. And so now what is the Christian life all about? The Christian life is all about setting your mind and heart on what Jesus has already completed on your behalf. And the reason why the vast majority of this room would agree with me that Jesus has risen from the dead, but so few of us are actually living resurrected lives, the reason why that disconnect is there is because you don't know how to fight from victory. See, Christianity is not about fighting toward a victory. It's about realizing that one already happened and living with that awareness. What's that awareness called? Here it is, two points. This is how you live in the victory of Jesus, the attention of your mind and the affection of your heart. If you want to walk in the victory that was purchased for you, you set your mind on things above and you set your heart on treasuring Jesus. This is the battleground, but it's not to get you to a position with God. It's to remind you of who you already are. So as I sprint through both of these things, I just want it to be known today that walking in resurrection power is possible for you. But the reason why you're not, if you're not, is because you don't do these two things. And for too long in the church, we have majored on telling people, hey, listen, we just got to get you to church. Listen, we just got to get you to adjust these behaviors and adjust these words and adjust these little quick fixes to your life. No, 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 Walking in the Christian life has everything to do with learning how to do these two things. How do you set the attention of your mind on the victory of Jesus? And how do you set the affection of your heart on knowing God personally? Look at somebody next to you say victory. Once again, I just want to remind you, this is all about victory. Here's what Paul said in Romans 12.2. He said, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Notice that. The pathway to transformation as a believer in Jesus is a changed mind. It's about letting your mind believe what God has already accomplished. How do I do that? It's right here. The main way God will hold the attention of your mind has to do with whether or not you hold the application of his word. And for many of us, we've let our lives become so busy and so filled up with distraction and so many things on our phone that we don't actually open the doorway of victory that's right in front of us. Hey, you want to be able to correct the devil's lies? You want to be able to correct those accusations? You better be armed with truth. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Every time Satan quoted the Bible toward Jesus, you know what Jesus did back? He quoted it correctly back at him. He didn't just know it. He knew it in context, and he knew it to apply it to a situation to go, yeah, yeah, that verse in Psalms about, uh, about the angels catching me, that's not meant for me to interpret it as I need to jump off this building. So, no. And here's how I'm going to correct you. Listen, you're not going to walk in victory unless you... You renew the attention of your mind to the word of God. And I preach that message all the time. I realize that a lot of you are here and you're going, great, i got to learn how to read my Bible. Nobody's going to believe it when I say out loud, I don't know what I'm doing when I open my Bible. People all over ACC right now are opening their mouths for the first time and saying, I don't know how to read the word of God. And they're discovering it in community because God didn't create you to renew your mind on your own. It's a group project. And so is number two, the affection of your heart. This is where I think what God is doing through this movement is so powerful. Because a lot of us have learned about setting our mind on the scriptures, but very few of us have learned about connecting affection to our Heavenly Father. And when you see people in this room responding to God emotionally, you need to know, I know that's hard for a lot of you, You go, oh, we're going to go to that hand-raising church on Easter. I know. Some of you call us that. I've heard you. But you need to know none of that is about an emotional showing or a style of response. It's just about affection. So if I watched you when our football team scores on a Saturday, and I can't wait till we're back in that stadium, and I just can't wait. But I, I'm more excited about this moment because I hated not gathering together a year ago on Easter. And just the fact that you're in front of me right now is such a gift and a blessing. But when we get together and we respond emotionally, what do we do? We make our affections stirred toward what our heart treasures. And Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus is not just Lord of your life in your mind. He has to be the Lord of the worship of your heart. And the only way for that to happen is for you to see Jesus as better than any other option you have for your life. So for 10 years, I've been preaching the Bible and that's my main message. Jesus is better, Jesus wins. And I've tried to prove to people wherever I get the opportunity to preach that Jesus is better than any other option. And I've got some good sermons on that. I got a sermon from John chapter six about Jesus being the bread of life and offering true satisfaction. I got amazing content that I could put in front of you to go, why wouldn't you choose Jesus? Don't waste your life. You have no other option for satisfaction. You have no other option for unconditional love. You have no other option for purpose and meaning. You have no other option for eternity. Why would you choose anything other than Jesus? But here's what I've realized. No one can open someone's eyes with a style of presentation. Only the Holy Spirit can open the eyes of a hardened heart. So if you're here right now and you know that God is doing something new in your life, don't you dare ignore that notion that's going on in your spirit right now. Everyone around you might not even care, but you feel right now that the God of the universe is connecting resurrection 2,000 years ago to your life. Do not walk out of here without acknowledging that. This is your moment. And I want to call us to be a people who don't just set our minds on having our attention on scripture, but set our hearts to live worshipful lives. What does a worshipful life look? It looks like a life that's grateful to be saved. So let's respond like a grateful people. If you're here right now and you've never said yes to a relationship with Jesus, you're going to get the opportunity to do that. But if you're here right now and if you could be so real, you might as well. I've been as real as I could be up here. The attention of your mind and the affection of your heart, it's on a lot of other things other than Jesus. You get the opportunity for a new beginning right here and right now. And I care enough about your eternal soul to tell you, I cannot promise you you're going to get another opportunity next Easter. I just can't. We've seen the brevity of life like never before the last year. So do not leave this place without setting your mind and heart on the one who's raised at the right hand of God. You can stand up all over this place. The band's gonna come up here and we're gonna sing out about the resurrection of Jesus. But I wanna have a final plea with you before I pray. Please, church, please do not waste your life on anything less than living for the glory and fame of Jesus. There is nothing worth more and there's nothing that eternally satisfies. Would you bow your head all over this place? If you're here today, And this might be the first time you've ever said yes to faith in Jesus. Or you might have just realized that you've been walking away from God for a long time. And you want to reset your attention and affection on him. This is your moment to do that, and I want to give you an opportunity to respond. If you want the story of Resurrection Sunday, Easter at Auburn Community Church in your life to be one that you mark saying, Jesus wins over my heart and my life, would you just raise your hand right where you are right now? Jesus, I give you my life. I give you everything. I give you all my attention. I give you all my affection. You'll never be the same. Heavenly Father, you see every single soul in this moment who's responding to you. God, I pray in the name of Jesus that you cover them with confidence that they are who you say they are. God, I thank you that because of the resurrection of Jesus, we have a guarantee. I pray that we would receive the Holy Spirit as people who are open and available to the power that's ours. God, would you take this moment and make it resound beyond a church service? Would you take us into our families, into our homes, our jobs, our schools, and let us live the resurrected lives that were purchased for us on that cross? God, we are yours. We sing about your victory. We lift up your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Come on, church, let's celebrate the resurrection.